week on Myths and Legends, we're starting the long-awaited Popovol, the epic origin story from Maya mythology. We'll see that if the sun is up in the sky screaming at you, well, it looks like you need to go fight the sun. And then, if at first you don't succeed in creating humans, try, try again. And again, and again, and maybe enlist tortilla griddles to help you clean up your mess. The creature this week is a flying evil bird Cthulhu who apparently can't hold its liquor. This is Myths and Legends, episode 320A, Origin Story. This is a podcast where we tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you might think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. Today, we're getting into the much-anticipated Popovol, the text of the myths and history of the Quiche people, one of the Maya peoples whose civilization comprised parts of modern-day Mexico, Guatemala, Belize, Honduras, and El Salvador. The account was preserved in oral tradition up until the early 18th century, when it was put down to paper by the Dominican friar Francisco Ximenez. Sadly, after the Spanish conquest of the Maya in the 16th and 17th centuries, many accounts of Mesoamerican myths and history were straight up destroyed by colonists and missionaries. So the Popovul is special, not just because it's really interesting and fun, but because it managed to survive at all. Even more than other mythologies, we're dealing with big gaps in what we know. So this, today, is just one particular account of the legends. It's kind of the main one out there, but still, keep that in mind. You don't need a ton of background. We're at the beginning of the world. The sun doesn't even exist yet in its current form. And there are a number of creation gods. They're really just trying to nail down the final design for what will become their primary vehicle of worship and timekeeping. Us. The humans. All right, so once more from the top. Hurricane, Newborn Thunder, Sudden Thunderbolt, Heart of Sky, Heart of Earth, Maker, Modeler, Bearer, Begetter, and go. The Maker, one of the primordial gods, looked at the assembled deer, birds, pumas, jaguars, serpents, and other animals. And other animals they had just finished creating. The animals looked awkwardly at their creators. The jaguar and puma snarled. The birds chirped and sang. The serpent dragged itself against the ground. Bearer and Begetter, two of the gods, looked at each other. And then at Maker, was that praise? Maker looked back. Did that sound like praise to any of them? They held their hands up. Whoa, whoa, look, no. It sounded like gibberish and nonsense. Were their fathers and mothers? They need to say our names and praise us. I know they need to say our names and praise us. That's why we're here. Maker barked and then took a deep breath. Maker was sorry. They It, it had been a long day and this, this isn't going well. Bearer completed Maker's sentence. It is not, Maker facepalmed. And real quickly, all this is in the translation I'm using. The gods being exasperated that they can't get things right the first time. There's a time and place for poking fun at stories, like Madame Dolnoy talking about how awesome the opulence of the Ancien Regime was a few episodes back. But an indigenous culture we still struggle to fully understand because of the ravages of colonialism? Not the time or place. So we'll keep the fun thematically appropriate. 
Maker raised their hands and, again, tried to get their new creations to sing their names in praise. Hurricane, Newborn Thunderbolt, Sudden Thunderbolt, Heart of Sky, Heart of Earth, Maker, Modeler, Bearer, Begetter, Go. It had been a full few days. One assumes days were kind of more of a concept than a reality at this point. With Kukumas, the god of the wind and the rain, and Tepu, the sovereign plumed serpent, the primordial gods had seen the void, the wide expanse of sky and sea, and thought, no, it would be nice, some existence, with a word, earth. The pooled seas parted, and an expanse opened up. Water flowed down from the mountains into the sea. With a wave, vegetation sprang up. Trees and bushes, vines and flowers. There was a planning meeting for the animals. And for version one, they had a pretty good showing. Deer, birds, pumas, jaguars, serpents, rattlesnakes, and fertilances. They thought they might be finished, but nope. They learned, at their first praise choir practice, that they still had a long way to go. I don't want to punish them, one of the gods said. Since we made them, isn't it really on us that they can't talk and praise us? You know what? You're right, the first said. They should praise us if we made them. That's not the takeaway I was going for, the first said. But the second couldn't be convinced. They turned to the animals. Your place? Your place is the canyons, the forests. We're going to try again. Make some beings that can speak our praises. So when the time comes, your service to them will be offering up your flesh to be eaten. Yeah. Bet you wish you praised us now. The god shrugged. They turned back to the group. Can you believe these things? They're just so obstinate. Standing around like they didn't understand a word I just said. They deserve to get eaten. Maker waved in the air before modeler, bearer, and begetter. All right, this was his new thing. This was his design for humans. Yeah. It'll be able to give praise, provide for the earth, plant, Maker said, and then walked over to the form under a sheet. Oh, I made blankets too, Maker said, and pulled the blanket away. It was a human. The rest of the gods looked at it. It's a pile of dirt? Maker said, yeah, it was cost-effective, abundant, and... and horrifying. The dirt was too crumbly. The mud parts were too liquid, and the areas that weren't falling apart were slowly falling off. The being with half a face, the gloopy side slowly making its way down to the ground, tried to scream at the horror of existence, but couldn't speak. And Maker conceded that this also did not go well. The gods in attendance told it to go swimming and human version 2 dissolved into blissful non-existence in a pool of water. People, it seemed, were proving a tough nut to crack, but they needed someone to praise them and keep their days. Alright, alright, I think I cracked the code, Heart of the Sky said before the assembled gods. They all looked at Heart of the Sky, and the prototype human standing next to him, carved from wood. It was like when car companies carved the car out of clay. It was a nice touch for the presentation. It's... it's not a prototype, Heart of the Sky said. The others said, okay, but it's made out of wood. And the last one was made out of mud, what's your point? The assembled deities held up their hands, okay, they didn't mean anything by it. 
This whole human creating thing was very stressful for everyone. Go ahead and bring the weird, splintery mannequin online. Hello there, the wooden person said. It looked to the others. Who are you? The gods looked at each other. What? Had, had Heart of the Sky done it? Heart of the Sky turned to their creation. Hello, Heart of the Sky. And these other ones were the humans' creators. Praise us and keep time and d- d- do human stuff. The wooden human nodded. Heart of the Sky held up their hands, and that's how humans were... Hello there, the wooden person said. It, it looked to the others. Who are you? The heart of the sky chuckled. Uh, okay, just they were just talking about this heart of the sky, and these other ones were the humans' creators. Uh, praise us and keep time, and once again do the human stuff. The wooden human nodded. Heart of the sky looked back to the group. Small hiccup, but it's fixed. Nope. Hello there, the wooden person said. Heart of the sky's shoulders slumped. They all ignored the Gen Two human as it asked who everyone was didn't really matter anyway, it would just ask again as soon as it turned around. They all quickly learned that the fleet of Gen 2 humans Heart of the Sky built could talk, but that was kind of it, cognitively. They held nothing in their minds, they kept no memories, they would be completely useless for the purposes the gods had. Further, wood was not so great for human construction. When it was fresh, right after Heart of the Sky finished up, their bodies were solid. But, like I learned when I let too many years go by before painting the fence out back, untreated wood can get warped and discolored as too much time goes by. In a matter of years, but nothing to the gods, the wood people were walking around deformed and half-broken. Somehow, they had been able to multiply, and they had started covering the earth. So, solutions had to be found. A flood, sent by Heart of the Sky, took out most of them, Something called the, quote, gouger of faces came after them next. I posted a picture from the book I used on the website, and despite being called gouger of faces, it kind of looks like a Muppet licking a guy's eyeball. Anyway, after that sudden blood letter, crunching jaguar and tearing jaguar mopped up and, quote, pounded them down to bones, and then smashed even the bones. For any that remained, the whole earth rose up against the wood people with the turkeys and dogs attacking them. Their own tortilla griddles and cooking pots attacked them, and the earth was blackened from all the wood guys. It had to be weird to watch turkeys, dogs, and tortilla griddles beat up wood people at the beginning of time. Trees threw them down when they tried to climb. Caves slammed shut. There was no place to hide because the earth they had used so callously was now turning against them, which nothing to read into there. They couldn't get rid of all of them, though. Some managed to hide out, and the gods allowed it. This, apparently, was the origin of monkeys, who are small and look like humans, but aren't. We are going to take a hard left and actually meet some characters, but that will be right after this. During the time of the wood people, but completely unrelated to the wood people, the gods of death looked up at the ceiling as their whole apartment rumbled. Again, what was their deal? It was all the time with these guys. 
it was like they were living under a bowling alley. And the Lords of Death kind of were living under a bowling alley. The Lords of Death were in Shabalba, the underworld, which was ruled by one death and seven death. They oversaw a whole death-themed bureaucracy whose names sounded like one heavy metal band after the next. You had Scab Stripper and Blood Gatherer. You had Demon of Pus and Demon of Jaundice. Bone Scepter, Skull Scepter, Demon of Filth, and the Demon of Woe. Each of them had a different domain. Scab Stripper and Blood Gatherer draw blood from people. The Demons of Pus and Jaundice are, well, I mean, they're pretty self-explanatory. We don't need to dig into the varied forms of pus on this podcast. Bone and Skull Scepter just reduce people to bones through hunger. The Demons of Filth and Woe are kind of the most interesting because they give people fright when said people have grime on their doorway and they just crawl around on the ground until they die. Something else you have to be worried about in this life, I guess. And in a decidedly different turn, name-wise, you have Wing and Packstrap, whose domain is people dying a sudden death on the road and vomiting blood, which, I guess, happened enough for two lords of the underworld to have to oversee it. Anyway, they were annoyed, because upstairs, these two guys, it seemed like all they did on the face of the earth was play ball, all day every day. It shook the underworld, it was so annoying. And for that reason, of course, they had to die. And look, I, I get it. In college, my apartment was directly underneath some guy who owned a full drum set, and who enjoyed getting loaded at 2.30am on a weeknight and playing it, while watching cable news at full volume. What I'm saying is, I understand the frustration. So, the Lords of Death sent a couple of messengers topside, owls. They had a message dictated by their bosses. What's up, everybody? Your boys One Death and Seven Death coming at you with an invitation for a game down here in the underworld. We keep hearing how awesome you all are up there. Emphasis on the hearing. Constantly. Can't even think down here. Anyway, bring all your sweet sports equipment down here for a fun game. Definitely won't execute you. All right, all right, that's good. Sign it from me. Dictated but not read. You don't think it's too colloquial, like it sounds too, uh, in your face? We want to put them at ease so they're not suspecting anything. Wait, you're not still writing that, are you? The messengers, the Algar of the underworld, finished up the message and the two brothers, one Hunapu and seven Hunapu, looked at each other. Summoned to the underworld by the lords of death to play ball? That sounded awesome. They just had to go tell their mother that they were leaving. And their mother wept the lords of death were going to murder them. The brothers looked at each other. Uh, no, they weren't. They said it in their letter that they weren't going to kill them. So that issue seems to be settled. They just came back to get all their stuff and drop off the kids. One monkey and one artisan, one Hunapu's sons, looked to him. What, what the heck? They weren't going? One Hunapu and seven Hunapu said they weren't going to get killed despite the pretty gruesome name lineup on the people who signed the letter. That being said, the underworld was a sketchy place in any mythology. So one monkey and one artisan, one Hunapu's sweet boys, needed to stay here for now. Now, you might be wondering, who are these people? And that's fair. Well, in addition to being inconsiderate neighbors, they're something of lesser gods themselves. One Hunapu had children, but his partner died. Seven Hunapu, quote, remained a boy. Not sure if that's like a man-child thing or if he literally remained a boy because he didn't marry. Regardless, nowadays they just spent all day every day playing ball directly above Shibalba, the underworld. 
or they did, until they had their heads cut off. Yeah, you know, I mean, we all die. That shouldn't come as a surprise. That being said, if you get a summons to the underworld to go play ball with death, maybe you accidentally toss that one into the garbage and say it got lost in the mail. Especially if, to get there, you have to go through something called Scorpion Rapids. And yeah, it's difficult to put a positive spin on Scorpion Rapids, but it's impossible to put a positive spin on the River of Pus they had to wade through. Like, literally, it's called River of Pus. They did it, though. They made it through Scorpion Rapids in the River of Pus. They talked to the decoy One Death and Seven Death, which were just mannequins carved out of wood who apparently thought it was hilarious to mess with the people they invited down to murder. Then the actual Lords of Death directed them to their seat on a rock so hot that it was orange. For some reason, one Hunapu and seven Hunapu sat down on the rock and they leapt up like Mario and Mario 64, jumping everywhere and just holding their butts, as the story says. And somehow, it only got worse from there. The Lords of Death told them that they were so excited to play tomorrow, so fun. They already had lodging set up for them in the dark house. It was a dark house. The brothers looked to the dark house. Huh, little, little spooky, huh? The Lords of Death said that if they preferred, they could stay in the rattling house, the jaguar house, the bat house, or the razor house. The brothers said, no, no, the dark house would do. If there weren't enough warning flags, you should really realize something was up when the ball was, essentially, a circular saw made out of bone. When the deed was done, and one Hunapu and seven Hunapu were decapitated by the not-at-all ball, one death and seven death laughed, but their underlings wanted to know what should be done with the bodies. One death said, well, bury them. They weren't monsters. Well, okay, they were very monstrous. So with that in mind, bury seven Hunapu completely, but leave one Hunapu's head out and rest it in the fork of a tree as a warning to everyone who isn't a good upstairs neighbor. The underlings asked if that was the real message here. One death shrugged. Also, he did kind of want their sporting goods equipment, as the story says. Wait, where was that? Blood Moon, the daughter of Blood Gatherer, approached the tree. She had heard some stuff, here and there, about the tree. No one was supposed to approach it, because it had the head of some guy the Lords of Death killed. But... Some guy the Lords of Death killed is frighteningly unspecific. And she was Blood Moon, the daughter of Blood Gatherer. She was used to heads. Also, that fruit looked really sweet. What didn't look sweet was the skull resting on the fork of the tree. Do you want the fruit of this tree, young one? Blood Moon, the young woman, nodded. Yeah, that's why she came with a basket and all that. What's up? To pick the fruit of this tree, you must hold out your hand, the skull rasped. Blood Moon said, okay, I mean, that's how you pick fruit from a tree, but okay. She held out her hand to pick the fruit and spit. Ha! The skull cried out when he spat in her hand. Blood Moon pulled her hand back and wiped it on her clothes. Gross. The spit was gone. Nah, I'm just kidding. You can pick the fruit of the tree if you want. You are pregnant now, though. The skull laughed. Blood Moon said, uh, she didn't have any personal experience with all that. 
But she knew how it worked, and that wasn't how it worked. I'm a talking skull whose consciousness has merged with my brother of the same name. We're in the underworld after I was beheaded by your father, one of the lords of death. Also, there are still wooden monkey people running around up there, and there's not a sun yet. What makes you think any biological rules apply? Blood Moon's eyes widened. Oh no. She was pregnant. The skull told her to relax. She could go up above ground now. Find his mother, Shimukane. She was to give the children the names Hunapu and Shibalanke. And they would be twins who... Hey, why was she running away? I mean, I'm conveying important plot de- details. Ah, rats. We will meet the Mayan Hero Twins, but that will, once again, be read after this. Blood Moon did not listen to the bleached skull that just impregnated her with his spit without her consent. She went home, wanting, trying to believe that it wasn't true, that she wasn't pregnant. Six months later, though, she was showing. It was undeniable. She was going to have a baby, or if the skull was to be believed, babies. She, however, was not believed. Not by her father, Blood Gatherer, who questioned her, demanding to know what man she had been with. She correctly stated she hadn't been with anyone, but didn't clarify. I mean, why, right? He wouldn't have believed her that hand spit led to the conception and he had already made up his mind, she learned, when the Owl Guard of the Underworld took her away. She asked them what they were going to do, and they told her. Their orders were to take her far away and sacrifice her, but bring back her heart as proof, so all the Lords of Death could hold it in their hands and feel how goopy it was. Say what you want, but the Lords of Death, always on brand. The Lords of Death might have been heartless, but the owls? The owls were not. She told them the story, how she was innocent, and she had this pregnancy forced upon her by a skull, a skull spitting on her hand, and now she was going to die for it? The owls looked at Blood Moon, then looked at each other. No, no, she was not. A few days later, Blood Moon and the owls parted. Blood Moon at the entrance to the underworld, she was to make her arduous climb, almost seven months pregnant, and presumably have to cross the River of Pus and Scorpion Rapids. The owls, who had formed a thing that looked vaguely like a human heart out of tree resin, made their way back down to the Lords of Death. As the Lords of Death watched the heart simmer and smoke in the fire, I guess it passed the field test, with them commenting on the pleasing level of gore, according to the original text, the owls escaped out of a hole in the ceiling, right before the smoke. You see, I guess the smoke from that particular resin was more than a little toxic, and Blood Moon, knowing they would burn her heart, had planned for that. The room shrieked and stormed out to take revenge against the owls, but they had been temporarily blinded by the smoke. Blood Moon and the owls got away, and the daughter of Blood Gatherer had her revenge.
Shibalanke and Hunapu cried out. Blood Moon cradled the boys in her arms. After her de facto mother-in-law told her she didn't want that little trickster in her house, Blood Moon did win her over with some light gardening. She went away to give birth and raise the boys for their first few years before leading them back to the house with their grandmother, where they all stayed. Their names, as I said, were Shibalanke and Hunapu, the Mayan hero twins. And just before their birth, Blood Moon became convinced that they were their father, fathers, that they were one Hunapu and seven Hunapu reborn. They were certainly smart enough, smart enough to outsmart their own brother sons, one monkey and one artisan, who didn't ask for little brothers and didn't want anything from them other than for them to die and be a very cheap funeral, as Hank Scorpio would say. Shibalanke and Hunapu took the lemons that were literally murderous older brothers and turned them into lemonade. They got good and they got good fast. They had to stay a step ahead of their brothers. They had to hunt for their food, learn to sneak when they could, and fight when they couldn't sneak. Furthermore, they learned to scheme, which was how, when they came home empty-handed, their grandmother asked what was up. What was up was that today was the day. The twins had been planning this for weeks. Today was the day they got rid of their older brothers, and they were finally able to live in peace. That meant, of course, angry tree friends. A lot of the parts of the story seem to require some backstory that's either lost to time or unavailable to me. Because when the boys said their dead birds got caught up in some trees that they couldn't climb, and Grandma told them to ask their older brothers for help, the older brothers, one monkey and one artisan, found the trees growing in around them as they climbed up into the branches. I'm not sure if trees were a lot more spry in their earlier days or what, or if they were helping Shibalanke and Hunapu, or if the hero twins knew they needed to be quick and quiet when moving through the treetops. But one monkey and one artisan were trapped. Shibalanke and Hunapu yelled out some advice. Do that thing where you tie your coat around your waist, but instead of your coat, it's your pants, and then do it backwards so the legs are hanging off the back, and up. Oh, you're an actual monkey now. Ha! And they were. Grandma, far from being horrified that two of her grandsons had been turned into monkeys, actually found it pretty hilarious. She found it so hilarious that, after the boys played the flute and drew them back to the house four times, she accidentally drove them off with her hurtful laughing four times. The blame squarely on Grandma and the brothers, Shibalanke and Hunapu settled into a life on the farm with their mother and grandmother. Or tried to. If it wasn't for the son... Bragging? Vukub Kakwix, the seven macaw. He was exhausting. He wasn't really the son. That was the problem. He's just metal, right? Hunapu asked his brother, Shibalanke. Shibalanke nodded, yeah. All he did was reflect the bit of light of the heart of the sun. And yet he's all like, I'm the sun. And his demon kid is always going on about how he's the earth. You know what we should do? One twin asked the other. The other said he had some idea. They could shoot him while he was at a meal with their blowguns make him sick so that he dies, and put an end to his metal and gems and all that. Wow, you've thought about this, Hunapu arched his eyebrows. Shibalanke said, yeah, it was really annoying. Like, imagine the sun, but the sun is a giant metal bird who is always yelling about how awesome it is. It would get to be a lot. 
And yeah, they traveled beneath the tree of Seven Macaw, and Hunapu readied his blowgun and... First shot. They were the hero twins for a reason. The dart went straight up through his beak, shattered the jaw, sent his teeth tumbling out here and there, and the Seven Macaw careened to the earth. Hunapu ran out to grab the bird and mess him up a little bit, but metal wings unfolded in the sky above him. He had misjudged this situation. Shibalanke heard a scream from behind some leaves, and his brother staggered back. Shibalanke studied his brother. He had had two arms when they arrived here, didn't he? Hunapu nodded, the bleeding beginning to stop. He needed, um, a doctor, probably? The elderly couple looked at Shibalanke and Hunapu. Um, okay, so they were going to get this straight. The twins wanted the couple to pretend to be their grandparents. The twins nodded. But they had grandparents. The twins nodded again. All right. And you don't want me to heal this guy yet. The twins shook their heads. The elderly couple said, okay. Uh, sure. And why? Shibalanke said, well, because... Their duties as healers included pulling worms out of teeth and curing eyes, right? The couple said, yeah. Shibalanke said, don't worry about it. He would explain on the way. So that is why we are so sorry about our little scamps. The grandparents smiled at Seven Macaw. The hero twins played in the background. They shot me in the face, the Macaw said. Uh, somehow, with his jaw just dangling there all gnarly. Yeah, I knew we shouldn't have gotten them those blowguns. Boys will be boys, am I right? The grandpa smiled. I mean, there's a limit to boys being boys, and you are way past it when you're shooting people in the faces with blow darts. Still, McCall had more than made up for it when he tore a child's arm off. So the grandparents, as they called themselves, were there to make it right. They would heal the McCall, and... By heal, they meant slowly shame and kill him. It was all part of the plan. They fixed his teeth, but replaced his literally pearly chompers with shined corn. After they took out his eyes to do work on them, they stripped off his metal without him even realizing. And when they put eyes back in, he looked at himself. And when the last of his greatness left him, he died of shame. The healers stitched Hunapu's arm back on, and the boys shook their head. Self-magnification. Don't do it. Also, don't scream about how awesome you are in the sky constantly around kids with blow darts and their doctor fake grandparents, as the saying goes. He killed the 400 boys. Shibalanke said to Hunapu, the second twin sighed. Uh, okay, he was going to need a lot more context for that sentence. Like, any context. Also, how are there 400 boys now? We're not the only ones. Also, where did our grandma come from? Shibalanke said Hunapu was missing the bigger picture here. He killed the 400 boys. Hunapu said, by nature of the definite article, he understood that the boys were important but the pronoun there also needed some explanation. Who was this he that Shibalanke kept referring to? 
That was, of course, Zipagna, the eldest son of Seven Macaw. Now, he was Earth, or in control of Earth. He could make mountains and was also a giant alligator when the 400 boys... The context that I've given is as much context as I've gotten, so we're all starting from the same place here. When the 400 boys were building their house, they were struggling with a log on the way home. Zipagna, the alligator son of Seven Macaw, saw them and offered to help. Carrying the log on his back, no problem, for the boys who had been clearly having a difficult time. So, for this small act of kindness, he, of course, had to die. Now, people say it was a different time to justify all sorts of terrible things, but in a time after the Gen 2 wooden human prototypes were killed by their own tortilla griddles, and before humans actually existed, when giant alligators and flashy macaws roamed the earth, I like to think that it might actually apply here. Maybe the 400 boys were envious of his strength. Maybe they were worried that someone stronger than 400 boys could turn on the world at any moment. But, okay, okay, I mean, how strong are 400 boys? No matter what you say, the strength is not cumulative. It's not linear. You hit a point of diminishing returns, where the addition of another boy is not really adding all that much more strength. And it's not like they can form up into one giant boy that uses their combined strength. At some point, it becomes more of an organization issue than anything else, because those 400 boys are going to be getting in each other's way. I don't know why I'm getting so into the weeds with the 400 boys, but they thought very highly of themselves and their strength. Which is why, when they convinced Zipakna to dig a hole for them, they sent logs careening down into the hole, crushing him. Except, of course, they didn't crush him. When a group the same size and age of a fairly large American middle school is immediately conspiring to kill you, you're probably going to get the inkling that something's up. Zapakna did, and dug sideways at the bottom of the hole. He felt the earth tremble as the logs thudded onto the dirt. He heard the 400 boys high-fiving and listened to them finish their hut over the course of the next three days. And then, after they were celebrating, Zapakna heard them scream as he crushed them underneath their hut. The 400 boys became stars in the sky. Hunapu shook his head. That was terrible, like all around. And it looked like things weren't over with the family of the seven macaw. And we're going to leave it on a bit of a cliffhanger this week. Next week, we'll finish up with the Popovo and see Shibalanke and Hunapu's famous trip to the underworld. If you'd like to support the show, there's still a membership thing on the site. For less than the price of a large watermelon slicer, you can get extra episodes and ad-free versions of the show. That will also slice a watermelon. It will just take a little bit longer, slicing a watermelon with your phone or computer. Check it out at mythpodcast.com slash membership or find us on Apple Podcasts to subscribe through Apple. The creature this week is the Snallagaster from the state of Maryland in the United States. Birds don't need any extra help being off-putting, but a murderous Cthulhu bird with one eye and tentacles dangling down from its blood-soaked beak? That's something that, if spotted should make the papers, right? Well, it apparently did. 
in something seemingly directly out of Neil Gaiman's book American Gods, German immigrants brought the legend of the Schnellergeist, translated to Fast Ghost, to Western Maryland in the 1800s. And then an actual creature resembling their fear emerged. When it wasn't enjoying its favorite meal of human entrails, it was screaming with a noise like a train whistle, letting people know, hey, I'll be hungry soon. In 1909, though, it was spotted and things really kicked off in South Mountain, where it was allegedly spotted picking a man off the ground and piercing his jugular. When Hunter shot at it, the bullets bounced off of it and only made the Snallagaster angry. Prohibition in the United States was generally considered to be a failure, but there was one area where it was an unmitigated success, liquidating cryptids. A town that sounds like it's going out of its way to be folksy, Frog Hollow, Maryland, was the final resting place of the Snallagaster. By the way, if we have anyone listening from Frog Hollow, Maryland, send me an email and I'll send you a t-shirt for making fun of your town. I'm from Loveland, Ohio, home of the Loveland Frogman, so I know your pain of being from a place with a funny name and a weird cryptid. Anyway, the year was 1932, and Frog Hollow was apparently home to a pretty big moonshine operation, with 2,500 gallons of hooch just sitting out there in the open. The Snallagaster, wanting to wet its literal beak, followed the fumes until the fumes became too much. It dropped down into the boiling, lie-packed still and shrieked as it dissolved. The weird thing was, the prohibition officers who arrived at the scene, after the authorities were drawn to the commotion, found the bones floating in the vat, like a Rick and Morty bit, and they actually told that to the paper at the time. Still, they had a job to do for like 11 more months until Prohibition was repealed in 33. 560 pounds of dynamite later, and the still, not to mention the skeleton of the Snallagaster, was reduced to dust. That's it for this week. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. Our theme song is by Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to even more of the music we used in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.